National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns, is brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check out their website at cybersecuritysummit.org for a list of their upcoming webinar series. And now, your host, John Olson. Uh, Good morning. It's Wednesday, and you've joined us for this edition of National Security This Week. I'm your host, John Olson. We get together on here on KYMN Radio every Wednesday at 9 a.m. to discuss national security. We're joined by guests from our local area, from around Minnesota, and from across the nation to help us explore American national security challenges and opportunities. We're going to tackle a, a strategically vital discussion this morning, Sweden's application to the join the NATO alliance. Now, many people might uh, question such a bold statement about Sweden's entry into the NATO being strategically vital. However, I, I think I can convince you by the time we're done with uh, today's show that this is indeed true. Our guest today is someone who has written about a wide range of international security conundrums for many years now, and her commentary is always both insightful and impactful. She's a sought-after expert on many security topics. Elizabeth Braugh currently serves as a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute, or AEI, where she focuses on defense against emerging national security challenges such as hybrid and gray zone threats. Concurrently, she is a columnist with Foreign Policy, where she writes on national security and the globalized economy. She serves as a member of the National Preparedness Commission in the U.K. She's also a member of the Steering Committee of the Aurora Forum and a member of the Advisory Board for Gallows Technologies. Ms. Braugh is the author of The Defender's Dilemma, Identifying and Deterring Gray Zone Aggression, and also the book God's Spies, the Stasi's Cold War Espionage Campaign Inside the Church. Before joining the American Enterprise Institute, Ms. Braugh was a senior research fellow at the Royal United Services Institute in London, where she founded and led its Modern Deterrence Project. She has also worked for Control Risks, a global risk consultancy. Ms. Brau began her career as a journalist, reporting on Europe for the Christian Science Monitor, Newsweek, and the International Metro Group of Newspapers, among others. In addition to foreign policy, she has often published in a wide range of publications, including the Financial Times, Politico, the Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, writing in German, and the Wall Street Journal. Ms. Bra attended the University of Hagen in Germany, graduating with a Master of Arts in Political Science and German Literature. She earned her Bachelor of Arts from Friedrich Schiller University in Jena, also in Germany. Elizabeth Bra, welcome to National Security This Week. Thank you for having me. A- and where are you sitting this morning? I'm sitting in Washington, and uh, that is where I usually sit, but uh, I'm often uh, on the road. So uh, uh, it is somewhat unusual for us to be uh, in a time zone that is... Uh, workable, but here we are, and it's it's uh, it's. Uh, I'm delighted to join you. So before we get into our discussions today, I, I, I'd like to note I've I've had some amazing guests on this show from a wide range of think tanks. Uh, you're with the American Enterprise Institute. I always ask my guests who are who are working at think tanks if uh, if they could just tell us a little bit about the think tank where they're at. Could you tell us just a bit about the American Enterprise Institute? Yes, the American Enterprise Institute is uh, one of the large think tanks in Washington, and I'm sitting here in in our uh, palatial building in Dupont Circle, and uh, it's it's uh, an unusual privilege in the think tank world to be in an organization that is well funded. So thank you to the donors, and uh, and it's also an organization that allows gives the scholars. Uh, complete uh, intellectual freedom, which is also unusual. In many other think tanks, there is a sort of a company line that you have to tow, not so at AEI. So I I can say whatever I like, obviously, on the basis that that I I don't say crazy things or outrageous things. But I think uh, if you're hired by AEI, (laughs) you are deemed to be somebody who doesn't say crazy or outrageous things. But it is an unusual uh, and unusually... uh, liberal uh, in in the most uh, positive sense of the word, unusually uh, liberal uh, institution where you really uh, get to uh, engage uh, in your own intellectual activities and express your ideas without having to toe a particular line. And I'm I'm uh, I'm so grateful to be in an organization that allows me to do that. So, Elizabeth, you are a journalist by training, and you've had a wealth of experience uh, across the field of journalism. In journalism, it's my understanding, the goal is to report fact-based truths and to mostly let the consumer of journalism decide how they feel about an issue. Uh, think tanks, many many think tanks, are, are nonpartisan, and they tend to use some of the same approaches to delivering analysis. They they. They let the facts and the data uh, lead them to conclusions, uh, researchers at think tanks. 
It's always tempting, I think, to build into a think tank research document or a paper some sort of personal view on subjects. How, how do you balance your personal feelings and beliefs with the facts and the data when you produce papers from the American Enterprise Institute? Does your, does your continuing work with a number of media outlets uh, help you to retain that balanced, nonpartisan focus uh, in your writing? I remember, John, when I when I switched from journalism to to uh, think tank uh, life, and I wrote something, and and the editor said, "Well, you write like a journalist," and that was not a compliment. And and the the so the 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 big difference, John, is that in in uh, as a think tanker, you get to express a view, but your commitment to facts and fact-based discussion should still be the same as, as in journalism. And I think it should be the same everywhere. We have to have a commitment to uh, discussion based on facts. Obviously, in news reporting, you should just report the facts and you shouldn't engage in any discussion based on them. As a think tanker, you get to discuss uh, you, you get to express your views, but you should express your views based on facts, not based on on uh, flawed um, flawed understanding of facts. And this is people used to think of this, and uh, in many cases still think of this as sort of a, a luxury problem. Well, you know, it, I, it doesn't matter that much if 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 the facts are not exactly one hundred percent accurate, because it's you know it's just a it's just a sort of a discussion and it's sort of a victimless crime. No, it's not a victimless crime. As we speak, John, two Swedish citizens have been targeted and shot and killed in Brussels because they were Swedes and they were targeted by the, self, the, the, the self-professed uh, Islamic State uh, uh, member adherent uh, who said he targeted them because they were Swedes because he was, uh, he said it was to avenge um uh islam or or offense caused to islam and and what was that offense you may ask because sweden is 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 a country that is is so peaceful and 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 uh, doesn't offend anybody it's those quran burnings that mm. uh, an iraqi refugee staged in sweden this summer and under swedish legislation you are allowed to uh, to uh, express your views on a particular religion, on, on every religion, that is part of free speech in Sweden. But, John, this is where this matters uh, to, to our conversation about facts. Uh, people started opining about these Quran burnings without having a proper understanding of Swedish legislation. They said Sweden is Islamophobic, uh, Sweden, the Swedish government actively permits Quran burnings. It, it was no such things. And this frenzied debate by people who didn't look for facts and and uh, were out to, to just get attention for themselves or get a few clicks on social media, they contributed to this frenzied atmosphere and ha- atmosphere of anger and hatred towards Sweden that led this IS supporter to shoot and kill two Swedish citizens. So that topic, I, I think, will will uh, will play into some later discussions that I want to have with you uh, about uh, Sweden's application to NATO. But so let's go ahead and get into our, our core topic uh, for today's show. That's Sweden's application to join the NATO alliance. Uh, we should say it up front, you are Swedish, yes, born and raised? Born and raised, yes. <laughs> so I'll be relying now on your unbiased analysis as a journalist as we discuss uh, Sweden's uh, application today. What was it about Russia's invasion of Ukraine that caused uh, Sweden and, and Finland, two nations that have been very closely aligned in defense policy for many decades now, uh, to decide to apply for NATO membership? Uh, I, I personally served as U.S. Naval Attaché in Helsinki uh, from 2008 to 2011, and, and at that time the, the Finns were adamant that they would they would not join NATO. Uh, but things changed very quickly for the Finns after Russia invaded Ukraine. What happened in Sweden that caused the Swedish people and the government to decide that neutrality was no longer a viable path forward and that applying the NATO alliance was the right choice for Sweden? It was an extraordinary few months uh, in uh, at the beginning of 2022. And and the, the most extraordinary development, it has to be said, was in Finland. So Finland, as as you mentioned, John, is a country where it, it was it was such NATO was such a sensitive issue. They even asking the Finns about uh, about the, the the potential prospect of of uh, at some point wanting to join NATO. Even that was too much. And 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 the reason they are so sensitive, and it was so sensitive, is that that they they have this long history of of. Uh, 
of striking striking an extremely fine balance between um, being uh, bullied by Russia and cooperating with Russia, having strong defense but not wanting to provoke Russia in any way. It's an extraordinary feat uh, the Finns have accomplished over the decades. But then, John, what happened in early 2022 was that the Finnish public started saying, we want to join NATO. This was not uh, an idea that came from the political parties, was among the political parties. If you had asked them, uh, and if without consulting the public, they would have probably said, well, you know, let's keep doing what we've always done because that's worked so well for us. But the public started expressing his views. And in a, in a democracy, lo and behold, decision makers listen to the public. And so when, when they saw support for NATO membership leap from uh, the low 20 percent range to almost 70 percent, they said, oh, uh, we'd better apply for NATO membership then. And here is where that relates to Sweden. So Sweden and Finland have always been uh, maintained this symbiotic relationship of being two non-aligned countries. And, and it only works if the two of them are non-aligned together. You can't be by yourself and be non-aligned. You've, you've got to have somebody else. So otherwise, it's very lonely. So then Sweden saw this happening. And in Sweden, has, Sweden has a long history of the center-right wanting to join NATO and the center-left uh, not wanting to join NATO. And for the Social Democrats, who, as you know, have governed Sweden for, for the better part of the past century, for them staying outside NATO is uh, is an article of faith. I mean, it's not just a, a policy choice. It really is a deep-rooted ideological uh, tenet of faith that, that you, Sweden should not be part of NATO. It's seen as somehow, you know, American, and, and we, we don't want that. And and so that, the, the, and, and so what what's, uh, the Social Democrats have always said is, oh, if Finland decides to join uh, NATO, you know, we might we might consider it uh, and knowing that Finland would never decide they wanted to join NATO. And then lo and behold, Finland decided it wanted to join NATO. So the S Swedish uh, government, which at that point was a minority social democratic government, uh, really had no choice but to say, well, <laughs> in that case, I, I suppose we should apply too. And and. The centre-right parties uh, in, in opposition were in favour already. So you had a parliamentary majority in favour of, of uh, joining NATO. And at that point, the public opinion had also shifted to the point where it was significantly above 50%, not in the sort of almost 70% as it was in Finland, but nevertheless above 50%. And that's how it happened. So, so it, it was all triggered by the Finnish public. That, that, that is fascinating because when I was in Finland, I heard them say, oh, we will never, you know, we will only join Finland or we will only join NATO if the Swedes decide to do it kind of a thing, right? Uh, they were adamant yeah. that uh, they wouldn't do it unless Sweden did it, and, and so now it all came together. Uh, for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 94.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Elizabeth Bra from the American Enterprise Institute, and we're discussing Sweden's application to NATO. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so let's uh, let's talk, Elizabeth Bra. Let's talk about what Sweden brings to the alliance. Uh, can you tell us about Sweden's political clout on the world stage? How, how impactful is Sweden among the international community, and, and what is Sweden known for around the world? Sweden is small but mighty, and, and actually not that small. With yeah, around ten million uh, inhabitants, it's it's not it's not one of the world's smaller countries, but it's also clearly not one of the the biggest ones. But uh, even with this relatively uh, modest population, its political clout is is extraordinary, and, and that is a, a a path that Sweden has been charting for for decades, and it began during World War II when when Sweden sort of through no choice of its own, uh, achieved this this almost unique position of of not being invaded. Uh, Sweden and Switzerland, the two of them, uh, by the grace of God, were not invaded. But it's it's extraordinary to this day that that they escaped, but they did. And so um, Sweden at that point was uh, already heavily social democratic, and and the the social democrats kept governing for 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 several more decades, and and for them. They were 
one can say they they had many of the traditional social democratic uh, characteristics attributes, and one of them was um, um, a streak of anti-Americanism, and this is this is common among many U- European social democratic parties, but none has been uh, as dominant as the Swedish social democratic party. So so when the Cold War began, it became an article phase for for Sweden to remain outside uh, NATO when it was found in in uh, in in 1949 and uh it 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 worked quite well for sweden and and i think what what worked well for sweden was also the fact that during world war ii had built up an extraordinarily impressive total defense uh, uh effort machinery whatever you want to call it uh it, it did have time to prepare because it saw its neighbors being invaded and and uh, as they were invaded and then occupied sweden just kept kept preparing 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 uh both of my grandfathers were on constant uh uh reservist duty my my maternal grandfather actually both of them uh got sort of three days off from from military duty to to get married and then they returned and so uh, this is how sweden's total defense began it was essentially a, a response to germany waging total war so germany waged total war sweden said well <laughs> we'll do total defense and it really involved every part of of society uh not just uh the arm the, the active duty armed forces and and the many 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 reservists but also all the sub- large chunk of chunks chunks of the rest of the civilian population and companies and and that effort was improved uh up on during the cold war to the point where sweden really ran the most effective the most extensive total defense that I have ever seen anywhere. And, and obviously I've only lived through uh, total defense uh, uh, in in Sweden because no other country really does it uh, to that extent. But I've read about how the countries that have tried it, uh, what they've done, and, and it doesn't come close to what Sweden did. The only thing that comes close really is uh, Finland during the Cold War and, and subsequently. But uh, that effort continued during the, the Cold War. And it, when I think back of it, to it, it, it the parts I can remember and the parts that, that I've read about and, and studied subsequently, it, it's second to none in its ambition and its execution. Uh, so starting with, with obviously large armed forces, uh, large reserves comprising uh, all the men who had done military service, uh, but then including a, a large number of auxiliary organizations that anybody could join, including, for example, the LOTAS, that, that was that were, uh, an organization for, for women uh, back before women were very heavy, before they were really that well represented in the armed forces, they could be part of the LOTAS, uh, which was a military organization, but non, not uh, not uh, kinetic, so doing support duties. Uh, but there were lots of other organizations as well. Uh, yeah, you could train dogs for the military. You could drive uh, lorries, so trucks for the military. You could do radio communications for the military. And that was sort of your... your, uh, your uh, hobby and but it was also a contribution to total defense and to the prospective war effort so all of that uh, is something that sweden excelled at and and then it, it unfortunately did away with after the end of the cold war but it's trying to is is working to build up again that's a, a major contribution sweden can make to nato but since you asked about uh, concrete contributions at this point the the civilian part of total defense is one but more most importantly for nato it's for example, the Swedish Navy, which is which is uh, uh, larger than one than uh, other countries, its size. Uh, so it's it's large. It looks after a very long coastline, and it's highly uh, specialized and and um, has significant expertise, especially in submarine warfare. So that's one aspect. Its air force, of course, is extremely good, and it flies Gripens, which are fantastic aircraft that are not heavily represented in NATO. In fact, uh, almost not at all. And of course, it has an army that that uh, that is is as good as as uh, as some of the best armies within NATO. So it's it's a, a net contribute. It will be a net contributor whenever the time comes that it's it's allowed to join NATO. 
So I, I actually uh, wanted to specifically ask you about the Swedish military, sort of how it's broken down. Sweden has been a, a partner for peace with the NATO alliance for many, many years now. I, I actually served alongside a Swedish battalion in uh, Bosnia-Herzegovina back in 1999. Uh, so I'm quite familiar with the Swedish military's capabilities, but I think our listeners would uh, ben- benefit maybe from hearing your spe- perspective uh, on a little bit more about Swedish defense. I know that uh, there's been some articles written. You actually uh, penned one talking about uh, Sweden awakes from defense slumber back in September, uh, mid-September, just about a month ago. Uh, After years of stuttering efforts on defense, the country is once again becoming serious about security expenditures, was the title of of your article. There's another article that was in Breaking Defense by Robin Laird uh, that talks about Sweden's massive opportunity to rethink its role in Nordic defense. Uh, so what are your thoughts on, on how the Swedish military is, is rethinking uh, defense policy and, and planning and strategy and whatnot uh, with, in light of having applied to NATO? Yes, I think there's a difference there between the politicians and, and the military. So the military has, has maintained its high standards all along, although I have to say it was, it was uh, lean years for many years when the governments of both left and right consistently cut military funding. It's, and at one point, the prime minister, who at that point was from uh, the centre-right, said, well, it's essentially the, the military is a special interest. I mean, how can you say such a thing about uh, an institution that is vital to your country's survival? But that was a mindset at the time, right? You know, trade, do business with China, and the military is sort of a, a legacy institution that is only only matters to its own members. And that was the mindset. Um, whereas the military did keep up its its high standards, although I think morale definitely, not just I think, morale definitely suffered. And, but uh, it, the, the military did keep up its high standards and, and did good deeds, as you say, uh, in the Balkans and, and uh, acquitted itself very well there, the, the men and women who served there and, and, and elsewhere. Um, uh, and Afghanistan, of course. Uh, but uh, the governments um, didn't really, they, they treated the military almost as a sort of a legacy institution from, from the Cold War, and they didn't really know what to make of it. And, and then, of course, came the awakening with uh, the annexation of Ukraine, uh, of, of Crimea, sorry, where uh, Russia did signal that, that it was uh, pursuing a, a, an expansionist or aggressive path. And, and that led to some uh, increase in defense funding by um, defense investment by, by the government. Um, but uh, really nothing significant uh, and I think the big shift was the election last year when uh, a centre-left government was replaced, at that point, minority social democratic government was replaced by a a centre-right coalition. And and this coalition really gets the idea that that national security is... is, uh, is should be a priority for Sweden today, and uh, you can't just sort of give give the the, the armed forces you know a little bit of, of you know, stingy funding. You have to you have to properly invest in it, uh, or otherwise uh, it it will languish. And and so the current government is uh, exemplary from that point of view, uh, in that it, it has increased defense uh, defense funding significantly. And John, on top of that, uh, another area where it has been exemplary is is in sending equipment to Ukraine. Ah. Uh, it really uh, has done uh, much more than uh, anybody had expected, and and uh, and definitely much more than some NATO member states who could afford to send a lot to Ukraine but aren't doing it. Uh, what what kind of aid is is uh, Ukraine uh, receiving from Sweden right now uh, while, while they're defending their country? So uh, CV-90, which is a combat vehicle, uh, apparently extremely good. So I'm not, uh, I'm not an, uh, an army officer, obviously, so I can't tell from my own expertise. I, I can't say from my own expertise that it's very good, but it's, uh, it's reputed to be excellent and, and, uh, and, a, and a, a piece of equipment that the Ukrainians really wanted. It has also committed tanks. And, and by the way, has trained Ukrainian uh, troops uh, on CV-90. Has also committed tanks, uh, Swedish-made tanks, uh, Archer, 
the archer system, um, ammunition, and has also committed to uh, starting defense production uh, of the sort of equipment Ukraine needs in Ukraine itself, which is a, a, a really a bold move and, and, and a, a sign that, that Sweden is confident that Ukraine will prevail because you don't, you don't put a factory in, in a war zone if you, or a potential war zone. Uh, but Sweden is signaling that it believes that at least parts of Ukraine are safe enough for for defense production and and uh, obviously if you produce enough if we get the Ukrainians enough weapons uh, hopefully if the whole country will be safe enough for, for people to live in and they can return to the sort of lives uh, they had until February of last year. Yeah, it's a, it has been just an amazing change, a sea change of events in Europe with Russia making the decision for to launch the full scale invasion. So Sweden and Finland applied for NATO membership together at the same time. Finland's application uh, went through fairly smoothly, uh, and the Finnish flag was raised at NATO's military headquarters uh, back in the spring. Uh, Sweden, however, has not yet been confirmed for membership. Uh, Just very briefly before we take a a short uh, commercial break, uh, what has been the holdup within the NATO alliance to get Sweden into the alliance? It has been an extraordinary and turbulent ride. But what happened when when Sweden submitted its application was that it did have a commitment, verbal commitment from all existing NATO member states that they would uh, ratify because you don't apply if, if you know that yeah, one or more countries will, will refuse to ratify them. Why would they even apply? But it, it did have a verbal, verbal commitment. But then after Sweden submitted its application, President Erdogan of Turkey raised the point um very, very significant point that, that Sweden has uh, hosted for a number of years. Uh, and this goes back to the Cold War and uh, when Sweden was so proudly non-aligned and, uh, and, and Olaf Palme was prime minister and he wanted Sweden to play an important role internationally. So what he did, uh, at the, one of the things he did was he started um, uh, allowing for, for uh, Kurdish activists to get uh, asylum in Sweden. And it was very difficult for them to get asylum anywhere in, in, in NATO because uh, yeah, who would want to fa- offend a fellow NATO member state? But Sweden received Kurdish militants, and uh, or as, Kurt, as Turkey would say, militants, and Sweden would say activists, or anyway, Kurds. Uh, so, uh, and 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 Sweden has received many more Kurds over the years because that that became a, became a destination for them, and that didn't sort of bother anybody until Sweden needed something from Turkey, which was that ratification, and Turkey said, ah. You host Kurdish militants. That is that is a security, uh, national security concern for us. We will not ratify unless you you address this issue. And then I guess after the commercial break, we can talk about how Turkey wanted Sweden to address the issue because it still has not been addressed. Right. Uh, so let's go ahead and uh, we'll we'll just take a, about a minute break for uh, to recognize our sponsor, the Cybersecurity Summit. And we will be right back with uh, Elizabeth Bra as we talk more about uh, Sweden's application to NATO. We'll be right back. National Security This Week is sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, which is meeting this year from October 24th through the 26th at the Doubletree Hotel in Bloomington, Minnesota. The Cybersecurity Summit brings together cyber experts from industry, academia, and all levels of government to explore challenges, solutions, and opportunities in the cyber arena. The three-day summit includes speakers, workshops, discussions about advancing a cyber career, and keynote addresses by top leaders from across the cyber community. Learn more at cybersecuritysummit.org. All right, we're back here on National Security This Week with Elizabeth Bra from the American Enterprise Institute, and we're discussing Sweden's application to join NATO. So, Elizabeth, just before the break, uh, you highlighted uh, that, that Turkey has really been uh, sort of uh, the, the main country that blocked at uh, confirming Sweden's admittance uh, to, to the uh, NATO alliance. Uh, but it's both Turkey and Hungary. <laughs> but let's start with Turkey right now uh, under President uh, Erdogan. Uh, Turkey's specific objections, as they've stated it, were, as, as you mentioned before the break, uh, opposition to the fact that uh, that Sweden has allowed you know activists uh, in Turkey's case uh, militants uh, refuge in, in Sweden, but it's it's a whole lot more than that. 
Uh, so let's go ahead and take a, a little deeper dive into what Turkey wants in exchange for agreeing uh, and finally confirming uh, Sweden's uh, acceptance into the NATO alliance. Yes. So initially it was that uh, it was the presence of Turkish uh, Kurdish militants in Sweden. And and at that point, I think one could say Turkey has the legitimate concern. Uh, Kurdish militants uh, or militancy uh, poses a a real uh, issue to the Turkish government. And, And so you could say they it's they are within their rights to raise that and and so there was an agreement that was negotiated between uh turkey finland and sweden because finland was sort of drawn into this whole thing even though it barely has any kurdish uh, uh activists uh, uh living there but finland was drawn into it and and uh, sweden agreed to to make certain amendments in its uh, uh anti-terror legislation and and um and to extradite a number of, of Kurdish militants to Turkey, although it was never clear uh, whether that was an exact number they were supposed to extradite or whether it was sort of a, a general uh, general commitment to extradition. But anyway, that the, that agreement was negotiated by uh, Jens Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, uh, and, and these uh, three countries. And, and then subsequently Finland was allowed to join. But Turkey... I think or President Erdogan sensed an opportunity to just express his general frustration with, uh, I think, anti-Turkish sentiments within the West or NATO. And so he kept going. And, and Sweden, unfortunately, became the, the tool that he could use. So even after uh, Sweden and Finland signed this agreement and, and lived up to their commitments, and Sweden said after a, f- a few months, said, well, you know, we have done what, uh, what we promised in, in the agreement. Then he came up with something else and then something else altogether. And then, John, the unfortunate thing is what happened uh, earlier this year, so 2023, when uh, um, uh, an Iraqi, uh, Iraqi refugee living in Sweden decided to stage crazy stunts where he burnt the Quran and and that led to a lot of anger in the Muslim world and at this still it's not clear what motivated him whether it's just crazy whether he's an, an attention seeker he did get make a lot of money on it on TikTok apparently so was it that he wanted to make money who knows anyway he did this and it caused so much harm to Sweden um, and and it also caused unrest among Muslim immigrants in Sweden. And at that point, President Erdogan of Turkey said, "Well, I'm concerned about the security in the streets of Sweden, so I can't I can't possibly ratify. We can't possibly ratify." Um, and uh, but then in July, uh, he he did he had promised uh, that he would send the application for ratification to the parliament in, in October. And we speak uh, now in October and he still has not sent it to parliament for ratification. He comes up with these various things like, oh, I'm concerned about security in the streets of Sweden. And and uh, in the past few days, he has said, well, what about the F-16s? Because Turkey wants F-16s from America. So that has to be brought into the conversation again. And so now in October, he has, uh, the, the Turks have said, well, it may not be this month. So will it be next next month? We don't know. And it's incredibly frustrating because Sweden has fulfilled its obligations and would be a, a massive net contributor to NATO. Yeah, it was it was interesting to kind of, you know, watch the situation play out uh, here in the United States for, for me. Uh, I, I sort of assumed that Erdogan was using a lot of these issues for domestic political consumption as he was running for re-election. And I think a lot of people thought, well, you know, he's making a lot of noise, but he recognizes the importance of bringing Sweden into the NATO alliance. It's a very strong uh, candidate and will will bring a lot to the to the alliance itself. And after the election, if he wins re-election, he'll he'll go ahead and, you know, he'll he'll taper off. Well, now he sees an opportunity to extract concessions like you just mentioned, the F-16 sale. In fact, there's a report that came out that uh, Erdogan said the Turkish parliament will abide by his pledge to ratify Sweden's accession to the North Atlantic Treaty Organization 
if the U.S. sticks to its commitments to deliver F-16 fighter jets to Ankara. Uh, there's also been you know, a lot of negotiations about uh, being admitted to the European Union trade bloc, a whole bunch of things that, uh, that I think Erdogan really wants out of the deal. Where he finally settles, I, I don't know if we really know yet. Uh, but in the meantime, he's impeding uh, strengthening the NATO alliance for domestic uh, policy issues. Is that how you see it as well? Yes, and I think he's just he has seized this opportunity to get back at what he perceives to be anti-Turkish sentiments within the West and within uh, NATO in particular. And and this time, I mean, nobody nobody can do anything. We all want something from Turkey, which is their ratification. And and so you you can't lecture him because he has he has the Trump card. And the same goes for Hungary, of course, which is the other country that has yet to ratify. And it was. It was the general understanding that that Hungary was just hiding behind Turkey because Turkey had said we're not going to ratify. Hungary sort of saw an opportunity to, yeah, to just play hard to get or be difficult. Um, but uh, and and that they would they would ratify as, as soon as Turkey ratified. But uh, just a few weeks ago, uh, Hungary essentially raised a whole new uh, whole new aspect of this which um, happened uh, uh, in the form of a letter that the uh, uh, the foreign minister of Hungary sent to the foreign minister of Sweden where he said you know your parliamentarians or your country wants our parliamentarians to ratify your NATO accession and yet your politicians constantly denigrate uh, Hungarian democracy and by the way it has come to our attention that that you uh, SR which is the educational twin of the the public broadcasting company that SR um, has uh, anti Hungarian content in its in its uh, in its curriculum content and how do you expect us to ratify if your country is, is you know, engages in this such anti-hungarian sentiment and you sort of ask yourself well hang on what's what's what does the uh, foreign minister of Hungary think that the, the foreign minister of Sweden can do about what opposition politicians say about Hungary? I mean, I'm sure he would love them to, to tone down their criticism of Hungary, but obviously <laughs> he's not in a position to, to tell them what to say, nor is he in a position to tell uh, 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 an educational uh, company uh, 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 that is the twin of the public broadcasting company, but nevertheless not operating under the government, nor is any position to tell that company what sort of content to put uh, in its in its educational material. So it felt like Hungary just just wanted to again, like Turkey, get rid of a anger that that it, it feels. Uh, uh, that maybe has been triggered by what it perceives as anti-Hungarian sentiment uh, within uh, within NATO and especially within the European Union. What's interesting is both of these two NATO members have seen a bit of uh, democratic backsliding uh, over the years. Uh, uh, Hungary, I think there's lots of reporting that, that talks about there's a there's almost a level of sympathy in Hungary for Russia, Russia's position in the in the war, the invasion of uh, of Ukraine, which also makes it for a very interesting dynamic for the NATO alliance trying to uh, sort of, you know, s- smooth down the ruffled feathers here in both uh, uh, Turkey and, and Hungary. Uh, what, what do you do you think, Viktor Orban, who's leading Hungary, is there something specific that he wants from the NATO alliance or from the European Union? before he finally moves forward, or will he literally just wait and wait and wait until whatever the deal is that uh, Erdogan cuts uh, with the NATO alliance uh, or the EU goes through, and then he'll say, okay, we'll, we'll approve it. Because I'm pretty sure that in, in Hungary, nothing happens unless Viktor Orban says it's time to make it happen. Is that is that a good assessment? Yeah, he he has made Hungary what what it is today. I mean, he we should remember that Viktor Orban was a was a hero of the anti-communist uh, resistance uh, and, and opposition in in Hungary back when it was very uh, very risky to to oppose the the socialist uh, the, the the communist regime. But he was a brave man, brave student leader, and and uh, he has been part of Hungarian politics ever since but unfortunately has become more and more uh, authoritarian as as time has gone on and so i think we all we all respect the victor orban of the late 1980s and we wonder what happened to him because he 
he um he is definitely uh, on on a path sort of away from from the, the the western family and and where that matters is that if if he perceives uh the western family to be you know to be anti-hungarian he like Erdogan will treat this as an opportunity to get back at them and and that's what has happened and and there has been there is a lot of anti-hungarian sentiment and and some of it probably unjustified and and, and unfair but sweden's nato application is not the the <laughs> the field on which you fight that out that that is very true uh, we have seen sort of this rise of uh I guess it's populism and, and nationalism in different parts uh, of Europe o- over the last few years. I mean, we have a, a changed government in Italy. Uh, it's been stable for a little while now. The elections that just took place in Poland might be sort of a, a ratchet back against this move towards a little more authoritarian uh, form of government. Uh, do, you, do you think any of the opposition parties in, in, in Hungary have a chance at moving back into power, or has that dynamic changed enough. And, and similarly, Erdogan just won re-election. He's going to be in charge for quite a while. So somehow, some way, the NATO alliance has to find a way uh, to bring the, those two countries, those two leaders specifically, kind of back into the family. It does. And I think Jens Stoltenberg uh, is such a good NATO secretary general because he, he, he doesn't uh, name and shame. He tries to get... <laughs> gets everybody around the table make he tries to make them get along uh, and he has been successful i mean he even managed to to make uh, donald trump somehow part of the nato family which was uh, no mean feat it was an extraordinary achievement so uh, i'm not surprised that his his contract has been extended yet another time and uh, nato was and apparently now for the last time and nato will struggle to find uh, uh, a secretary general as good as he has been um but the the it's once you're a member of nato once a, a country is a member of nato uh, it can't be kicked out uh, and this is this is the reality today um NATO member states have to work with these two leaders. And, and I think, you know, on a military uh, basis, uh, Turkey is, a, is a, a, a valuable member of NATO and an obviously host to uh, a number of, of important military activities, including American ones. Uh, so a very uh, a crucial NATO member and ally from that point of view. And, and Hungary, well, it's better to have them in, in the alliance than outside. Um, and I, I, I think sometimes Western politicians maybe get tempted to criticize fellow leaders because they see the, the, the extremely heated atmosphere on social media where, you know, if they don't criticize Viktor Orban, they look too moderate. And so they, they will sort of make a, uh, a remark about Viktor Orban or about Erdogan for that matter. And it's, uh, just to 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 stave off the, the, the an angry social media mob or or, or just uh, opposition politicians who want more from them, but it does real damage to the relationship. I'm not saying you shouldn't criticize, um, you shouldn't criticize uh, imperfect democracy, but but if it is an ally from whom you you need uh, you want certain things, then I think you have to weigh the two and 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 maybe not be as forthright as, as you might like to about the state of democracy in the country. Uh, so for our audience, you're listening to KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. This is National Security This Week, and I'm your host, John Olson. Our guest today is Elizabeth Bra from the American Enterprise Institute, and we're discussing Sweden's application to NATO. We're sponsored by the Cybersecurity Summit, and you can learn more at www.cybersecuritysummit.org. Uh, so, uh, Elizabeth, we have about uh, 12 minutes or so left on the show today. Uh, I do want to ask you about your uh, your book that's going to be coming out uh, early next year. Uh, before we get to that, uh, I have one last question about Sweden's application to NATO. Once Sweden is finally admitted to NATO, and, and I frankly cannot fathom any other outcome, even if it takes far too long to finalize the deal, uh, what will change inside Sweden and in the NATO alliance once Sweden is a full voting member? What, what does your analysis say about the impact Sweden will have as a full NATO member? Well, first of all, Sweden is a country that, that has uh, long experience in expeditionary warfare, not not fighting wars, but having 
having military contingents serving overseas in various uh, various conflicts and indeed in peacekeeping Sweden has been one of the strongest peacekeeping nations for decades uh, more recently uh, though with a stronger focus on on various NATO uh, and other missions uh, in in its neighborhood and and uh, of course it was part of of um, the the collective uh, effort in Afghanistan and and um, so it has it, it's used to uh, it, expeditionary warfare, but it's also used to, to territorial defense, of course, which is what NATO is about. Um, and so, it, it and it has strong armed forces, well, well, um, uh, well managed armed forces, and of course, uh, uh, equipment of of the very highest standards. So, it, it will be a, it's an ally that can easily slide into the various forms of, of cooperation NATO has. Indeed, it's it's already part of, of as you know, John, from your own, from your own, from your own experience, it's, Sweden is already part of many of those uh, different uh, uh, cooperation forums and, and, and indeed joint exercises and so forth with NATO. So uh, essentially, Sweden is already cohabiting with NATO, it just needs to, to you know, sign uh, the, the the dotted line on the marriage license. So, it, not very much will change when Sweden joins NATO, except it gets the protection of being part of NATO. At this point, it's it's doing everything that it, almost everything that it will be doing as a NATO member state without having the protection of NATO and without being able to to contribute to NATO territorial defense if something were to happen, because you, then it's NATO member states defending another, another NATO member state. It doesn't call in uh, outside countries to try to help. And so that's that's what will happen when, when Sweden joins. So you have a, uh, a book coming out uh, in the not-too-distant future. Uh, could you tell us the title of the book and uh, a little bit about uh, the content? Yes, so it's uh, the title is Goodbye Globalization, the Return of a Divided World, and it's coming out uh, with Yale University Press. It's a general market book, not, not an academic one, uh, in February next year. And I started working on this book um, a couple of years ago because I, I work a lot with, with the private sector uh, in, in the area, in, 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 in my think tank work, because I, I look at new national security risks, and I realized that that. Uh, the the sort of aggression and threats our countries face today uh our, our companies or the private sector and indeed the rest of the civil society that's the new front line and there are so many threats and and so many risks and 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 then i started looking at uh, uh essentially the the state of the the private sector and the globalized economy and and uh, and i realized uh that that the the world is splitting uh regressing from globalization now in 2023 that seems an obvious thing to say but uh but uh i so I, it wasn't obvious then and as i started i decided to write about it and and yale uh liked the idea and so the book is is coming out this is essentially the moment where it's becoming obvious to, to everybody that oh, something is happening. Globalization is falling apart. And, and I have to say, two years ago, there were people who said, well, you know, it's just a blip and globalization will return. And, and it's just uh, you're, you're exaggerating uh, what's happening. And, and I, I have to say, I'm, I'm pleased I was proven right. I'm pleased uh, as, as an analyst that <laughs> was proven right or as a, the author of, of this book. Uh, obviously, as a citizen, I think it's it's not good that that our that the system we have built up for three decades is is falling apart. But having watched the the the, the sort of uh, the integration of the world over these 30, 35 years, and then the the problems that kept 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 popping up, I, I think it's it's fair to say that it was inevitable that it it, it it couldn't last and and so it's it's now it's falling apart and it's geopolitics clashing clashing with globalization and geopolitics is winning and but i have to say john it's not necessarily it's not an altogether bad thing because it means that we'll refashion ourselves uh western companies will trade more with with companies and in, in friendly countries even if they're not as friendly as as other western countries but you know look look at countries in the middle east uh, india and so forth we'll find new ways of trading and that will also aid national security because it's it's not good to have you know the well-being of our economy exposed to a country that that wishes of ill 
Yeah, and and I I think uh, you know we on this radio show we have talked about this sort of uh, these simmering tensions uh, between the dem- you know, the liberal democratic order of the post World War II era uh, and kind of the rise of these new autocratic leaders, uh, these sort of anti-democratic uh, movements. And, and unfortunately, it's, it's really sprung onto the world stage in a significant way uh, over the last uh, couple of years. I mean, if you think about all the coups that have taken place in Africa recently, that's a, there's a new spate of them that hadn't happened for a while. Uh, lots of other uh, security challenges all around the world. You combine that with, uh, you know, we thought maybe the BRICS had 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 flamed out a little bit, Brazil, Russia, India, uh, China, and South Africa. Now that has come on full force. They're actually talking about creating their own currency, uh, separate and distinct from uh, kind of the, the international trade in the, in, in the dollar. Uh, Jamie Dimon, uh, chief executive at uh, J.P. Morgan, uh, just came out a couple days ago. He said, this may be the most dangerous time the world has seen in decades. Uh, so your book is coming out at a at a very appropriate time. I know you've concentrated a lot on the uh, kind of the gray zone operations, the gray zone things that are happening that that seek to destabilize. Uh, let me ask you one just very quick question, and, and then uh, we can close out our discussion on your book. Uh, Finland uh, and uh, has, has a the Baltic connector pipeline uh, in in the Baltic Sea suddenly sprung a leak. <laughs> uh, you, you commented about that in one of your articles, I believe. Uh, a- any thoughts on, uh, on where this goes now that Finland is a, is a, is a full-fledged NATO member? Uh... It's a classic case of gray zone aggression. So infrastructure attacked, uh, and the Finns and Estonians have concluded they were sabotage. Um, but uh, it's not clear who did it, and they're investigating it, even if, if they figure out who did it. And, and the most, uh, if everybody's guessing it was an actor connected to Russia. But even then, if they, if, if, they, if they conclude it was an actor connected to Russia, what are they going to do about, the, about it then? This, and this is the beauty of gray zone aggression. You can cause a lot of harm using non-military means. And the country that you attack can do very little about it, which is why my, my book about it was called The Defender's Dilemma. It really is a defender's dilemma. So Estonia and Finland are not exactly going to go and blow up a Russian pipeline to avenge the sabotage of this pipeline. And 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 this is the challenge. And we don't have a, a good recipe or playbook or strategy for how to deal with grace and aggression. And if I can just add since since you are your show is in, in Minnesota, John, one of the, the most uh uh, impressive thinkers on gray zone aggression in the U.S. Congress. In the U.S. Congress is uh, a representative from Minnesota, Dean Phillips, who uh, is also a former businessman and and really gets these issues. And and I'm I'm so pleased that there are people who are not academics but practitioners uh, with real world insight who are who are. Uh, applying their expertise to this so that we can get some sort of playbook or strategy or or ideas at least about what to do yeah it's uh it's it's really fascinating you know the topic of your book that's coming are you weaving the 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 gray zone stuff uh gray zone challenges into the overall discussions of geostrategic challenges along with the economic challenges that's all i mean it's all part of the same reality that we're stuck in right now it is and if you look at for example uh business people being uh, detained uh, in China or uh, Western consultancies having their offices raided in China, uh, that is harmful. And, and yet there's nothing anybody can do about it. And it's it's the reality of the globalized economy today. So, of course, companies will draw their own conclusions, even if they don't sort of take any political uh, positions on, on China. They will say, well, it's just not safe enough. Yeah. Uh, Elizabeth, uh, each week I strive to make sure that we have a little bit of time left at the end of the show so I can give my guest the final word. Uh, what haven't I asked you today that I, that I should definitely have asked you? Or are, are there just some final thoughts you'd like to leave with our listeners regarding all the things we've talked about today, Sweden's application to NATO, uh, all the challenges that, uh, that are embedded in that, uh, especially with uh, Turkey and, and Hungary, or, or just sort of uh, the challenges that we see in the world today I mean, since the time that you and I locked in uh, this date and time for our discussion, uh, we have now had what's happened in Israel. Uh, we have the ongoing war in Ukraine. Uh, we have the ongoing uh, coup, or well, the coup and then uh, the violence being perpetrated against people in Myanmar. Uh, 
all of these things that are happening around the world are are, are signaling to me anyway that we are entering a very different uh, reality, a new time. Uh, what what thoughts do you have? We are entering a, a very unsettled period and 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 even dangerous period. And and so I think what I what I hope to to uh, communicate uh, to what I, what I would hope to communicate to your listeners is that national security is not just about what the U.S. military does, and it's not just the responsibility of of the U.S. military. It's everybody's responsibility. So if you look at, for example, in in Minnesota, uh, where you have um, Monsanto, I believe, a major uh, major company that has seen. Uh, various people from major competitors in a certain other country that shall remain nameless uh, steal its seeds uh, to leap uh, ahead of Monsanto. So you can say that's sort of a commercial uh, infringement, but it's also part of national security because without our uh, commercial secrets uh, that our Western companies have that they've spent millions and billions developing to get the best possible uh, products and goods without those commercial secrets if they are just stolen our economies will will not have the 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 cutting edge that that they need in order for, for other countries to uh, for our countries to flourish and 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 so we will we will lose in this global competition and so it's, it doesn't from that point of view you know the U.S. military can be the best in the world. It is the best in the world, but it can't look after every national security challenge. And, and so we all have a role to play. Companies have to uh, realize that they are part of, of making our, our countries successful. And, and, and if, if, if they see something unusual, they should, they should not just note it within the company, but, but let the authorities know. Same thing on, on a, a, for, for our citizens. If we see an outrageous event, we shouldn't we shouldn't just go ahead and, and share any content we can find about it because it can create uh, sentiments and hatred and anger that results uh, in violence. And and so it, and it's this and this is something that that countries uh, hostile to our countries have discovered and exploited. They they feed this sort of inflammatory content into what we see on, on social media. So. I, I I I would want to communicate that that our countries are uh, whether it's the U.S. or Sweden or any, or any other uh, liberal democracy are, are incredible countries. We want them to to remain incredible and and we and 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 fantastic places to live in. So we can all make a contribution to making that happen. And and so the U.S. military will obviously continue to to lead the NATO uh, alliance militarily. But even we at home in in our offices and in our living rooms, we can make a difference regardless of which country. Yeah, you're, you're touching on some of the, the the core topics that I love discussing on this show, and that's the, the tools of national power, uh, the power of diplomacy, the power of information, you know, sharing or not sharing it, military power and economic power. And we, we so often forget about the, the power of, of, of economics, of uh, development uh, opportunities around the world and how that can really influence things uh, and so many other things. Espionage is, is a big problem. Industrial espionage is specifically what you were talking about. Uh, we, we have had uh, some great shows on here talking about uh, uh, counterintelligence and, uh, and human intelligence collection. So, uh, Elizabeth, what, what articles are you working on right now, and, and when might me be able to read them in the many outlets for which you write? <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, this week I'm working on my next uh, column for uh, Political Europe, and it's about the ghost fleet. And, and uh, this ghost fleet, which, is, uh, which are ships, commercial vessels that, that have essentially gone dark because they transport... Uh, sanctioned goods to and from Russia and similar countries, and the, the ghost fleet is growing. And uh, because it doesn't have proper insurance, uh, because no, Western insurers don't want to insure it, obviously, um, it's uh, this ghost fleet is running into or is having more and more incidents, and and this is really dangerous. So there haven't been any any uh, catastrophic ones to date, but that's a matter of time. So that's what what my column is about in foreign policy. Uh, my column for uh, for for political Europe, my pro column for foreign policy is about the need for restraint and and fact checking on social media, so that we don't whip up the sort of atmosphere that caused. Uh, an Islamist militant to shoot and kill two Swedes in Brussels. Yeah. 
Uh, Elizabeth Baroff from the American Enterprise Institute, thank you for joining us today here on National Security This Week. Could you remind us of uh, American Enterprise Institute's uh, website uh, and where listeners can access articles you've written uh, for AEI? Yes, it's AEI.org, and you look for my name there, and I'm the only person in the world with this name. So (laughs) it's easy to find me at AEI or indeed on Google. Any other resources you might suggest for our listeners if they wanted to learn more about uh, Sweden's application uh, for NATO membership? Swedish National Television has uh, an English language offering, which um, I believe is pretty good. Obviously, I, I read it in, in Swedish, uh, but um, I, yeah, I think that's that's where I would go. And and also, um, Finnish uh, National Television and Radio, uh, as you will know, they have uh, news in Finnish. They also have news in Swedish uh, for the Swedish-speaking minority, and they have news in English. So uh, these are two good resources, and they, they tend to cover similar things. So I will say, since uh, we've had you on, we've been talking about uh, Sweden's application to NATO. Uh, You are Swedish. Uh, U.S. News and World Report came out not too long ago uh, and listed Sweden, by the way, as the number one country in the world for quality of life. (laughs) So you've got that going for you, uh, Elizabeth. Thank you so much, Elizabeth Bra, for spending time with us this morning here on National Security This Week. Thank you. And that closes this week's edition of National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. I'm your host, John Olson. Thank you for joining us today. I look forward to sharing time with you again next Wednesday morning at 9 a.m. when we will be live at the Cybersecurity Summit. Thank you for listening to National Security This Week here on KYMN Radio. Have a great finish to your week, everybody. Take care. You've been listening to National Security This Week, a weekly look at issues affecting America's security concerns with host John Olson. It's brought to you by the Cybersecurity Summit. Check their website, cybersecuritysummit.org, for a listing of their upcoming webinar series.